Hi everyone, so today I thought we could do a little bit of revision on A Christmas Carol. Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol during the reign of Queen Victoria, who reigned from 1837 to 1901. She epitomised the values of this era, and if you wanted to see a little bit more about what life was like at this time, perhaps as part of your revision for Context AO3, you could watch the ITV drama series, which is just called Victoria. Victoria married um, a German man called Albert and they had nine children together, which was pretty sort of, you know, representative of this time, really, like the, the large Cratchit family, which we meet in the novel. Uh, Christmas kind of developed around this time. A lot of the, the traditions we see today come from about this point in history, whether it be your idea of kind of decorating a tree or sending a Christmas card. But overall, the novel is set during sort of the Christmas period because I guess Dickens wanted to convey Christian doctrine, the lifestyle, the beliefs, the values um, that the Bible teaches. So <clears throat> at the time when Queen Victoria was on the throne, we've got huge expansion within the factories and factory work. And this was known as the Industrial Revolution. So during Victoria's reign, because of the power of steam, Victorian engineers created powerful machines that could run whole factories and sort of in particular would be thinking about textile factories and mills and, and, and things like this at the time. And people used to work for really small amounts of money, very dangerous conditions, including children. A lot of children from um, really poverty-stricken families would be encouraged to go and sort of earn their keep, whether it be through a workhouse, um, just for a small amount of food in return and somewhere to sleep, or they would be forced, I guess, to turn to crime and pickpocket. They wouldn't have had a social welfare system, um, social care like we do today. In the same respect, they also didn't have a national health service or state education. However, education is something that starts to develop from this point on. The Victorians were also incredibly worried about crime. Um, and it was believed that some of them were almost scared of the dark because at night time they would associate crime. We've got kind of um, lots of, of theft taking place just for people trying to sort of stay alive and feed themselves and their families, really. But punishments were much more severe. We've got the death penalty at this time. Um, and prisons were a lot different to how they are today as well. So even to steal something to stay alive, it could result in a really extreme punishment. And Dickens observed this extreme poverty as he walked around the streets of London. That's how he got his idea for the novel. And so he creates characters like Scrooge, who brand sort of poverty-stricken people as criminals. And that's representative of the, the upper classes, the business owners, who just view the working classes as responsible for crime rather than themselves. Also at the time, being in debt was a criminal offence. It wasn't like today where you can go for um, go to the shop and buy something on your credit card. If you had a loan and you got in debt, that was seen as being a, a criminal offence. And Dickens knew this from his own family's experience. His father went to debt as prison. So again, when he writes about are there no prisons, are there no workhouses, these are issues which have affected him personally or things that he has observed living at this time. Dickens also wants to address this idea that the, the population is increasing rapidly. Is this a potential contribution or cause for poverty experienced in the cities and in particular London at the time where this is set? Um, 
He's challenging wages being at rock bottom and people starving to death, um, high death rates with children, um, and probably this idea as well of horrible diseases like cholera and TB being spread due to overcrowding and dirty water. So Dickens is writing this then to um, try to promote a more socialist world uh, rather than the capitalist one that he observes. And so you could argue then that characters like Scrooge represent your typical business owner, greedy, uh, money-orientated capitalist at the time. Whereas the ghost of Christmas present, for example, or characters such as Fezziwig maybe, could be argued to be much more caring about others on the whole. Okay, now, a lot of, just touching on sort of this idea of um, kind of health again, a lot of people at the time lived in a single room. They'd have been very damp, obviously, we're, we're talking no central heating and things. They may not have even had windows at the time. The sewers were just pretty much open. People would have thrown waste into the streets or their rubbish was dumped into the River Thames, which was also used as drinking water. So therefore, it's unsurprising that at this time there was a, a kind of outburst of cholera, there was TB, people are dying left, right and centre from, from these health problems, which arguably has been created due to mass population and bad sanitation. And coal was used as, as the main fuel, and this created a lot of health problems. Um, you've got sort of filthy black smoke pouring through the streets of London. So where we've even got the descriptions in the novel of it being foggy, it could almost be argued that that's, as well as it being actual freezing fog and it being cold, it's this idea that the pollution's tearing through the streets and you can't see in front of you because of the thick smog. Um Dickens touches upon this idea of sickness then through Tiny Tim and it's believed he may have a disease called rickets and that's why he needs this crutch. But again, they'd have had much more sort of limited um, knowledge of, of health at the time, in particular mental health. So a little bit of a timeline then. In 1812, Charles Dickens was born and by 1823, his father was arrested uh, for debt and sent to prison. And as a result of this, Dickens had to give up his education and work in a factory. Now, you could argue this kind of links to when Scrooge is at boarding school, on his own, left behind. Um, his dad's portrayed as being quite cruel. He doesn't have a good relationship with him and he leaves the boarding school to start his first job. Now, in 1827... Um, he works as an office boy at a solicitor's firm. And again, this could be reflecting his experience um, through the character Scrooge when he is an apprentice at Fezziwigs. In between that time, he did manage to go to private school for two years um, and the family did inherit a little bit of money. So it kind of got them out of trouble for a short while. So he has experienced uh, a little bit more fortune arguably maybe like the character Fred, sort of not completely poverty-stricken, somewhere in the middle. He published his first short story in 1833. By 1837, Queen Victoria is on the throne and Albert in particular is believed to have been quite concerned about poverty, inequality and he wanted to focus on the importance of children and education. So perhaps Dickens supported this ideology by creating characters like Tiny Tim, 
to stress that provision was needed for the poor people and younger people. By 1842, there was um, a report written about child labour um, and working conditions for women and children. And so by 1843, Dickens was inspired to write A Christmas Carol. He wrote it in quite a hurry. It was um, He wanted it published for Christmas and he only made a really limited amount of money from this due to a lack of copyright laws at the time and he wanted the book to be illustrated. Several people made it into plays, but Overall, it was received by a wide audience, um, and so his message was conveyed. He used the emerging Gothic genre to interest people in kind of the supernatural and I guess their religious morals and values, thinking about the afterlife and attending church and looking after each other, to provoke a maximum amount of change. Um, his view of Christianity was a little bit different to that but obviously he's had to appeal to his audience at the time he believed that people should seek out opportunities to do good deeds for others um all the time not just at christmas time but you know people should be humble charitable faithful and forgiving rather than just merely appearing religious um so about doing it with integrity for the right reasons so um charles dickens then wrote many novels and, and some of which we've looked at as well in terms of um, Oliver Twist. You may have looked at extracts from Oliver Twist or, or watched this on TV at some point. And, and basically you can see what the workhouses were like there and about pickpocketers and about crime. And he seems to touch upon these ideas in, in his various novels. And one of the sort of um, things that's of interest to me is Old Joe's Place where you've got the pawnbroker's shop and it's showing the what the darker places of London were like and some of the characters there creates real visual representation of people struggling and the dialogue between them there is really interesting. I also like the representation of ignorance and want, the two children um, that emerge from the ghost of Christmas presents cloak and how he really stresses this importance of society looking after man and it being man's responsibility that everybody is cared for. So it was believed then that he would routinely walk the streets of London 10 or 20 miles at a time. And so his really extensive descriptions of the 19th century London setting, um, it really does allow the, the readers, even as a modern day audience, we get to experience the sights, sounds and smells of the city and what it would be like in London at the time. So it creates a believable, realistic setting which juxtaposes your supernatural element of the ghost. Okay then, so I'm going to read out um, a P paragraph now. Or, you know, Some of you may call these like Pika paragraphs and all those kind of things. It's just an example of how you could put some context stuff into your answer. So I want you to be thinking about within this particular paragraph, which is in your typical point, explain, uh, point evidence explanation style, I want you to be thinking about which bits are AO3, which bits are context based on what I've just told you. Dickens presents Scrooge as an unpleasant, feared, gothic character who the reader is initially repelled from in stave one. This is demonstrated in the quotation, the cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. 
Dickens uses negative adjectives to create a visual character description, old, grating and shriveled, which allows Scrooge to appear hardened to the harsh Victorian society, despite being a member of the wealthy middle class. Furthermore, sensory imagery is developed with lexis like cold and froze that allows the reader to appreciate the comparison between Scrooge's personality and the most bitter of weather. This distances us from the character, who is described by the intrusive narrator to alienate himself from society and therefore contrasts the writer's ideology of a society built on socialism. We learn that Scrooge could be a feared character when his eyes are described as red. This colour has connotations to the devil, anger, bloodshed, danger and death. Ideas that contribute to the gothic genre which became popular during the Victorian era when crime was rife and corruption was at its peak. The Victorian audience were highly superstitious, terrified people and the lower classes were indoctrinated by religion enforced from royalty and the upper classes. So eyes red could be linked to a devilish creature and would therefore evoke feelings of fear. Blue is also used to describe Scrooge's physical appearance. A colour with connotations of coldness, depression and loss of life and therefore reinforces Scrooge's cold heart, old age with limited time to change his ways and contributes to the semantic field of the Gothic which is established in the opening of Stave 1. Okay, so I just thought I would give you a little bit of a summary of what happens in each stave. And the reason I'm doing this is because I don't want you to retell the story when you produce an analytical response. But if you would like quotations from Beyond the Extract, then you can give a textual reference. So what you can say is in stave one and then such and such happens. So stave one begins then with Scrooge being presented as a cold, isolated, greedy businessman and the intrusive narrator reflects on Marley's death, which took place seven years ago. Fred visits Scrooge, but Scrooge rejects his invitation for Christmas dinner. He then refuses to give money to the charity workers who visit his office. Scrooge makes his way home, and the weather is described to be very icy and foggy that night. But he starts to experience hallucinations, including the door knocker turning into Marley's face and a hearse travelling up the stairs of his house. Marley appears and warns Scrooge about his greed. He informs him that three spirits will visit and then he leaves to a continued restless state with the other ghosts, which was believed to be like a purgatorial kind of existence between heaven and hell. So, stave two then, we have the ghost of Christmas past appears and takes Scrooge back to his childhood memories. We learn that Scrooge attended boarding school and spent most of his Christmas times alone had what was suggested to be an abusive father, but had a positive relationship with his sister who died later on, we presume, maybe even through childbirth, and that's why she's perhaps neg he's perhaps negative about Fred, but that's never stated. Uh, he then started to work for Fezziwig, um, found himself a girlfriend, Belle, who became his fiancée, but she ended the engagement because of his love of money and business. Yet we see her with somebody else and she, she finds happiness and creates this ideology. Scrooge then puts the ghost's light out with its extinguisher cap and he falls into a heavy sleep. He then wakes up in stave three to be presented to the ghost of Christmas present who appears on a mountain of food. Uh, we view the Cratchit's Christmas dinner and we meet Tiny Tim and we look at how Christmas is celebrated by different people across the world including overseas. 
We also visit Scrooge's nephew's house, Fred, and we meet ignorance and want towards the end of the stave. The phantom dies, leaving Scrooge to face the ghost of Christmas yet to come. So in stave four, the ghost of Christmas yet to come meets Scrooge in a graveyard and points um, rather than speaks. He's forced to sort of look upon his own funeral. Um, he visits old Joe's place, this pawnbroker's shop that I've just spoken about, and he sees people sort of selling his clothes that were taken off his dead body and his bed sheets and things. He's then warned of Tiny Tim's death and finally he reads his own name on his own gravestone. He begs the spirit to forgive him and give him a second chance before he collapses into his bed. Stave five then, Scrooge wakes up a changed man and he treats the Cratchits to a huge turkey, donates a lot of money to charity but we don't know how much that is. He raises Bob's salary and spends Christmas Day celebrating with his nephew. So we can see a huge change and What's important then is you don't always just recognise Scrooge as the villain at first and then a character who changes, but to try to evolve as a reader yourself. So, for example, in Stave 1, you could say you're repelled from the character, you're angry with him, um, you fear him. By Stave 2, maybe it's that you pity him. You know, he doesn't have a, a role model parent, he's on his own, he's alienated and vulnerable and that makes you feel a touch of sympathy for him and an understanding as to why he is the way he is. By stave three, when he's desperately trying to change um, and asking questions and, and showing emotion, you could feel a little bit lighthearted about that and that you um, are starting to champion him and want him to change and do better. By stave four, I guess you could be um, feeling fear for him rather than you know about him this time. Um, and by stave five, when he um, wakes up a changed man, you could be therefore much warmer to the character, closer to him and wanting him to do well. You could even argue for the Victorian era, he becomes somewhat of a role model. So you, you may get a character, as well as it being on um, an extract and about character, you may get um, a question on theme. So some of the, the themes that you could look at then and perhaps you could create spider diagrams or mind maps for each one of these with quotations and, and start to explore how these themes are presented almost as kind of mini exam plans. You could look at representation of Christmas, poverty, reformation or change, the supernatural, so in particular the ghosts, uh, relationships between characters, whether it be family relationships, romantic relationships, uh, business working relationships and so on. Uh, family and the importance of family. Regret or remorse and guilt. How fear or tension is created. Love. Society during the Victorian times or concerns about society. How the writer explores weather, especially to reflect kind of character, plot, writer's messages and so on. Inequality and crime. So let's have a little look through some of the characters then. So we've got the character Scrooge who highlights capitalism. He's a greedy businessman. He doesn't want to share his wealth with poorer people. He's Dickens is very worried about social inequality and welfare and he's therefore suggesting through this fictional character that the richer members of society should be more charitable or it's going to haunt them in the afterlife like it does with Marley. Scrooge is also a symbol of hope and of, of change because we see on this um, pathway to 
to change through the five staves that we have to learn to perhaps not judge a book by its cover. Like when we see him as a child, it gives more of an explanation. And perhaps everybody's vulnerable and everybody needs help in society from ignorance and one right through to Scrooge as a child. So he's at first presented as being isolated and cold. Um, and even as an old man, he's still isolated and cold because that's all he knows. That's what his parents have taught him. So it suggests child's upbringing is really important and that um, it's never too late to change. Of course, he's the protagonist. He's the main character. He juxtaposes other characters who are sort of jolly and content and loving and selfless, such as Fred, Fezziwig and the Ghost of Christmas Present. He's symbolic of the harsh and cruel Victorian society that was rife with crime, poverty, industrial development, poor living conditions and huge division for gender and class. He represents patriarchy, a male-dominated society. It's a man's world at this time. And they're very much exploited middle, um, you know, the middle classes would exploit those who were less fortunate in society. So some key quotations then for us to look at. He was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. So you can see a list and a rhythm building there. Um, hard and sharp as flint, which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Use of a simile there, and the adjective's hard and sharp to describe him. He's very steely and cold. He's secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. We've got that soft sibilant sound there. Creates like a bit of a whispering sound, which is quite key for the gothic genre. We see that quite frequently. Now, solitary as an oyster is a key image because um, as a simile there, it's suggesting the hardy exterior of the oyster has the hidden pearl with inside and everybody has this element of, of goodness within. Okay, another quotation then, which you may find quite memorable. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. So he believes that London is overcrowded and that people should die. And I guess we're kind of challenging this idea on, on who decides who lives and dies and that everybody should look after each other. It's the decision of God rather than the decision of the upper classes. Darkness is cheap and Scrooge liked it. Um, something else which you may find quite memorable is towards the end when he changes. We've also got an, another use of a list there um, of similes. I'm as light as a feather. And the feather there could be symbolic of kind of touching upon heaven like a, an angel's wing feather or being able to fly and get a bird's eye view on things and get perspective for the first time in his life. I'm as happy as an angel. Again, angel foreshadowing him going to heaven as a changed man rather than hell with the red eyes at the start. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. So kind of juxtaposing how his school experience was, but maybe through what he's learned from observing others. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. And Merry Christmas to everybody. So again, juxtaposition used between stave one and stave five of how this character changes. And we get these little clues throughout, even if it's just subtle key words. So for example, at the start in stave one, he's described to have a, I think it's like a wiry chin, as if he doesn't really care much for himself and he's not had a shave. 
But in step five, it's the first thing he does. And I think he accidentally kind of cuts himself because he's jumping about all excited, but he's, he's cleaning up his act. It's kind of symbolic of doing that. And symbols kind of run throughout this novel as well. The symbol of fire is another one which is quite significant because we associate a fire with domestic imagery, the home place and warmth. Um, and of course, we need warmth to survive. And we go from having... Bob Cratchit with a, a fire that's only one coal and he's trying to sort of warm his hands on a candle and that's showing how S Scrooge is very greedy and Bob Cratchit doesn't have a lot of um, luxury in his life or um, his his family is suffering a great deal. But then we've got this idea of um, Belle with her future husband and children when she moves on from Scrooge as having this huge roaring fire and sitting around the fire with children, creating this ideology for women at the time to be married and beautiful and have children and this lovely warm house. Um, and again, with the ghost of Christmas present, by a fire there again. So a fire is used as a bit of a symbol of hope as well. Okay, so I wanted to um, talk you through... Um, a P paragraph using one of those quotations that I've just looked at there because I think it's a key one that most students put into their answers and I'll talk you through just a bit of a recap on what an examiner would be looking for. So most of you will start with a clear kind of one sentence point to meet assessment objective one so that's all about point and evidence basically. So try to identify a language device if you can within your point and try to pick a rich quotation not too short not too long but lots to comment on if you pick something that's too bland and basic um, or you you know, you know make it too short, your explanation's going to suffer. And assessment objective two, which is all about language focus, language analysis, um, it's, re it's going to be really difficult to get marks for that. And that that's about 45% of your answer. Okay, so Dickens uses a simile to present Scrooge as a lonely, isolated, hostile and cold character. This is demonstrated in the quote, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. So as you can see there, we've kind of got a list of adjectives for AO1 to describe Scrooge's character rather than just presenting the key question words repetitively at the start of each paragraph. We've identified a technique to keep it focused for AO2, which is a simile. And we've backed it up with a relevant quotation because, of course, we've got hard and sharp as flint and we've got solitary as an oyster. So that matches. So what you need to do now then is try to develop your assessment objective two, which is analysing language and weave in AO3. So we'll start off with some AO2 then. The adjectives, hard and sharp, in the simile, hard and sharp as flint, suggest that Scrooge is hardened and lacking warmth. And the monosyllabic word sharp is cutting and has connotations of knives, razors and being cutting and cruel. This repels the reader as we fear Scrooge, who alienates himself from us, as well as the Victorian town setting, which Dickens places the character in. So we can see there we've got secondary technique of a word class and adjective and I think it's much better to use a word class as a secondary technique rather than to rely on just identifying word classes as an actual um, method used by a writer in your point. You can use reader response or re you know effect on the reader as AO2 stuff as well that's absolutely fine. Okay um, secondly so 
use those sentence openers to your advantage things like furthermore moreover additionally alternatively to show development within your answer even if you do end up repeating yourself a little bit or just saying it in a slightly different sort of phrased manner you're still trying to show the examiner that you're extending your um your argument and that's hopefully going to get you marks for layers of analysis so secondly the simile solitary is nice to reinforces the middle and then we're going to get a bit of l3 here upper class characters isolation in society as he becomes a microcosm for a greedy businessman becoming wealthier as a result of the industrial revolution so it's weaved in rather than bolted on at the end and then you flip back to l2 on the other hand, the noun oyster foreshadows a change in Scrooge and suggests he had a precious goodness hidden inside. So we've now seen simile, adjective, monosyllabic beats, uh, noun and foreshadowing. That's five techniques within one paragraph. It then develops to a sixth and a seventh. So we've got furthermore the metaphorical language of which no steel had ever struck out generous fire emphasises Scrooge's stinginess and uncharitable ways. Fire is a symbol of hope, generosity and change in the novella. And this quote foreshadows his road to reformation. So it's not about just thinking, I need to create four P paragraphs and look at four techniques. You need to think of it as being a bit of an umbrella approach of, of layering up these techniques. So your, your first technique might be imagery, but then creating imagery could be the use of an adjective, a noun, a semantic field of colour, a simile, a metaphor, personification. It could be a number of things. Try and cram in as much analysis and identify as many techniques as possible within your answer to get higher marks. Okay, we then finish with a bit of a summary linking back to the point and a bit of it more AO3. So overall, the quote presents the protagonist as a lonely character typical of the Gothic genre, which was popular in the Victorian period and used to educate the reader about socialism, as well as to entertain by storytelling. So it's thinking about the purpose of the novel, and you need to try and do that within your answer. You don't necessarily explicitly need to say Dickens' purpose was, but if you can say uh, he writes a novel to educate, that is a purpose word in itself. And of course, he wanted to try and shape future generations, didn't he, to be more charitable. Okay, the next character then, uh, which I thought we could look at is Belle. So Belle is Scrooge's fiance, and she shows what Scrooge has lost as a result of business, industry and insatiable greed. She represents relationships and class division. And I think she creates a Victorian ideology of women as being beautiful. Um, she's pretty much objectified even by the narrator um, within the description of her as a sort of young to middle-aged woman. She ends up married with children and the image there is quite sexualised of her when she's with her husband. Um, Dickens could be suggesting feminist views as he's representing another strong female here who has the power to break off a relationship which is very kind of different for this period when women had no rights and were property through marriage and she seeks to be treated with respect and valued higher than just money and business and like a business transaction we can draw a parallel between the characters Fan, his sister and Belle as being influential positive figures in Scrooge's life and we don't really hear anything about Scrooge's mother so perhaps again if you link into that weird kind of Oedipus complex you could be linking to that motherly figure he's looking for or um, is he that he warms to. Um, so some key quotations then that you could remember potentially about Belle um, and again it's really important that you link to feminist theory if, if this 
comes up as the extract. You fear the world too much, she answered gently. Another idol has displaced me. So quite short quotations there. The idol she's referring to, um, you could think of as being um, a link to religion there. It's saying don't worship another idol as one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? And this idol that Scrooge is described to uh, worship then is, is money from business. She also says then, if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even I believe that you would choose a dowerless girl? So she's basically saying... Um, if they'd met now that he's a little bit more established in business and is worth more money, he wouldn't look twice at her because she doesn't come with a big dowry payment. And a dowry payment was what the bride's father would have paid the husband to sort of take care of her, to look after her. And of course, with the aim of providing an heir, um, having kids. And another quotation she says is, I release you. So this idea that she's... Um, Releasing him from this relationship which chains him, which imprisons him, it's not something he wants, but arguably he's he's doing it himself and he's then chained by money. And that makes us again think of kind of the imagery of, of Marley, doesn't it? So another positive female we see then is Mrs. Fezziwig, who, you know, there's, there's parallel drawn between them within their dancing. They're described using the word equal, which is again really interesting for a couple at the time. And something which Dickens is arguing for, equality, maybe with gender. So he's associated them with generosity in the workplace and love and warmth at Christmas time. Um, joy, happiness within sort of dance and laughter. He's described um, to have one vast substantial smile. Sorry, that's Mrs. Fezziwick who's described as that. But their equality within marriage is shown through the quotation, old Fezziwick would have been a match for them and so would Mrs. Fezziwick. And he's very much loved by the community. Why? It's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart. It's Fezziwig alive again. So Scrooge is very pleased to see him. And although he should have acted like a role model to Scrooge, um, obviously Scrooge has chosen his own pathway. So you can see parallel between them. One's kind of how to do it right and one's how to do it wrong. Scrooge obviously being the way that we're advised not to do it like him, are we? We're meant to be more like Fezziwig. <laughs> He's also described then to be oily, rich, fat and jovial. That's his voice, which juxtaposes Scrooge's grating voice, which is described in Stave 1. And their dance um, very much involves everybody from kind of, you know, the milkman to the neighbour's daughter to whoever is invited to this dance of his. So he doesn't discriminate in any way um, and he's happy to provide for all. And the dance section then creates um, visual imagery and I guess relates to kind of it being a celebration at Christmas time. And of course, the musical language which is used not only within the title A Christmas Carol, but the references to staves, of course, we've got as well as, as the chapters. OK, a little sort of extract taken about them then. Um, Mrs. Fezziwig, as to her, she was worthy to be his partner in every sense of the term. If that's not high praise, tell me higher and I'll use it. A positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's calves. So again, he's associated with light um, and hope and positivity leading the way. And light's often associated in literature with guidance. It's a symbol for being led the way of being taught, being educated. So the ghost of Christmas past then encourages us to reflect on past memories, what we learn and cherish, what we experience, what we're nostalgic about. 
And this ghost informs us then that Scrooge has had a really tough childhood and starts the warning process, really, um, as well as the warming process um, of the audience to the protagonist. The ghost is a bit of a strange one. It's a blend of ages, genders and seasons. And this may symbolise the importance of everybody in society and making each day count. And it creates ambiguity and a sense of magic as a result of its appearance. It's associated then with light and positivity. It's got the kind of bright jet from its head. Again, being a symbol of hope, it's lighting up the way. Um, And I guess it provides a contrast to the cold, dark winter that's previously been described in Stave 1. So it's described as a strange figure like a child, yet not so like a child as an old man. And a child would be often associated with innocence and vulnerability, whereas an old man with maybe wisdom. Um, It's also described that its face does not have a single wrinkle and there's the tenderest bloom on its skin. So words um, like bloom or bright jet, uh, the summer flowers that we've got there, the lustrous belt that's described, um, which the sheen of which was beautiful, um, and it's described to sparkle and glitter. So the semantic field of light there is, again, very much associated with this ghost. And it wears a purest white, so it's kind of angelic in its appearance as well. Um, moving on then to um, the ghost of Christmas present... This character is seen as um, representative of, of generosity. He goes around sprinkling stuff from his torch on, on people's food and he says that a, a poor one most needs that. Um, he has over 1,800 brothers. So that suggests, again, he's saying to, to be a socialist and to look after everybody. He's got this illustrious laugh, which, again, we can link to Fezziwig. Um Biblical teachings of peace on earth and his scabbard doesn't have a sword and is rusted. So he represents love, not war. And choice overall, that everybody has the choice to be evil or the choice to be kind. Uh, He preaches about the responsibility of man and to care for those who are vulnerable like ignorance and want. We've got the magic of the supernatural because he's in the form of a giant. And his huge physique in that respect could be metaphorical itself of... um, you know, there's there's lots to go around. There's, we have a lot to give kind of thing. Um, even the fact then that he's, he's sat on a massive pile of food and his clothes are huge and all of that kind of stuff, it's representative of, of generosity. He kind of reminds me a bit of a bit of a modern-day Father Christmas type figure as well within his dress and his clothing and stuff. And he forces Scrooge to look at current issues in society and focus on immediate changes such as with the Cratchits and Fred. Now, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, he's more of your kind of Grim Reaper type figure, the hooded cloak without the face. It's kind of what you don't see, what you don't know about is is what's scary. And he communicates by pointing in the hand, being symbolic again of of guidance, of of whether it be Scrooge takes hold of um, the hand of the ghost of Christmas past or touches the robe of the ghost of Christmas present. With the ghost of Christmas yet to come, he points a finger and, and guides him there. The fact he doesn't speak, it creates fear, it creates tension. He's very cold. Um, he kind of represents, I think, the threat of hell as well and the the afterlife to condition people to give this really stern warning to the audience at the time. He's dressed in black, which has connotations, of course, to sort of hell and doom and fear and nighttime, all things which the Victorian reader would have been terrified by. He 
delivers Dickens's message in a much more severe way, doesn't he? And he's very symbolic again of and typical of your gothic kind of character. He prompts pretty rapid extreme change in the protagonist as well. Um, he's described at the start of the stave where he arrives then in stave four as the phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. And he seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. He's shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form and left nothing of its visible save one outstretched hand. So very haunting, something to fear. And although Marley comes with warning, he too is kind of quite a, a, a sort of Mogori kind of character with the bandage holding his jaw on. So he's set there to scare as well, really, and to provide um, this warning to Scrooge. He was a shrewd businessman like Scrooge. He was his partner. He's in a very restless state. He's been punished in the afterlife, but he's letting Scrooge have the warning that if he doesn't change his ways, it, it's going to be a lot worse for him. He creates terror through this body which is decomposed and he raises his voice and, and shouts kind of his changed ways, his changed morals and things that he now holds on to, but he can't do anything with them. He's very powerful as a speaker and Dickens uses lots of imperatives, lots of commands in his speech to overpower Scrooge. He highlights inequality in society, lack of provision for the poor, restriction in Victorian society and shows this kind of change in attitude, but when it's too too late for him because he's already in the afterlife so you've got to do it within your living life even if you're an old man like Scrooge he's there really I guess to um set up the narrative isn't he really he kind of gives away what's going to happen he says three ghosts are going to visit so his speech is used there to develop the narrative and perhaps that's deliberate for a less educated audience at the time so some key quotations then that you may associate with Marley um, though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound around its head and chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. As the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Mankind was my business. So lots of quotations again that you could pick out yourself. Uh, that's just a few. Okay, Fred then is representative of being kind and loyal, even though he's struggling. Towards the end there, we see that he's in debt and it's suggested that it's to his uncle, um, who is probably the worst person to be in debt to. Um, he invites his uncle to dinner every year, even though he's rude and bad-tempered and rejects his love. He's Fan's son, and lots of her good qualities that we see in a sort of little snapshot live on, don't they, within her son. Dickens creates him as a role model, encourages people to be more like Fred and caring to others. And he celebrates love and shows the importance of marriage, which reflects on Victorian ideals. His warmth very much contrasts Scrooge's coldness. And Scrooge, again, being sort of um, throughout compared to the ice-cold weather at the time. But then, of course, in Stave 5, the sun is shining because he's changed. So the use of pathetic fallacy there from Dickens. Uh, he's generous. He entertains large numbers of guests at Christmas time and therefore de delivers Dickens's message about being charitable because he's associated with family and 
religious views and that's kind of when they've got topper and the, the games that they're playing and so on a couple of quotations then he had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost this nephew of scrooge's that he was all in a glow his face was ruddy and handsome his eyes sparkled and his breath smoked again don't be angry uncle come dine with us tomorrow his nephew left the room without an angry word notwithstanding okay Moving on then, ignorance and want. They're metaphorical of suffering and child abuse and poverty and discrimination. They're dehumanised and are presented like animals to make us horrified and disturbed by their physical appearance. They're a microcosm of poverty-stricken children or orphans at the time. They represent a bleak future if the richer people don't change their greedy ways. They represent crime and desperation to survive in the cities. And Dickens uses children who are innocent and vulnerable to evoke the most outrage and horror to the readers and therefore to create the maximum impact to provoke change. They're described in this kind of dehumanised way where they're described, is it a foot or a claw? And as if they're already decomposing and perhaps ill, um, this yellowish skin that they've got suggests kind of a liver failure or problem and they're very much malnourished. So they were a boy and a girl yellow, meagre, ragged, scowling, wolfish, um, where grateful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of old age had pinched and twisted and pulled them into shreds. So we can see their very violent kind of imagery um, that's being used. And we can we can almost liken that description, can't we, to the ghost of Christmas past, this idea of children mixed with old age. Tiny Tim then, again, used as a bit of a microcosm, one example that reflects the many for poverty, vulnerable people in society, grief, suffering, lower-class children, disabilities without money or medical support. He's a crippled child. Um, Bob is described to be his Tim's blood horse all the way from church. He, he props this little kid up kind of thing. Um, he's very wise and positive despite living in such extreme poverty and suffering greatly with his health. Um, he is Scrooge's main motivator to change and he's given a second chance to be a father figure, which is quite heartwarming. Um, Scrooge had his eye upon them and especially Tiny Tim. He attends church. So again, conveying Dickens's religious views and morals through this character. God blesses everyone. Um, he hoped that people saw him in the church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to see them upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Um, the importance of family is displayed through this character and he becomes the centre of the Cratchit family. Okay then, another Model P paragraph. I want to try and get you sort of into the habit of recognising the assessment objectives. So I want you to think, what is point and evidence for assessment objective one? What is language analysis or reader's response assessment objective two? What is context about the historical period Dickens's experience for AO3? So Dickens presents the poverty-stricken Cratchit family as being content and grateful on Christmas Day. This is displayed in the quote, Mrs Cratchit entered flushed but smiling proudly with the pudding like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quarter of ignited brand brandy and bedight with Christmas holly stuck in the top. The adverb proudly implies that Mrs Cratchit feels accomplished in her Victorian housewife role and that her cooking was successful, 
something that all Victorian lower-class women would have respected, as women were limited to raising children and managing the home on the whole. The verbs flushed suggest she was under pressure, and this word has connotations of embarrassment and stress, which allows her character to, be, to come across to the reader as being vulnerable and so we warm to her. Furthermore, the verb smiling reflects the warmth of the family and shows that they are positive despite struggling to survive. This juxtaposes Scrooge's wealth and misery, reflects Dickens's messages to be charitable and loving at Christmas time, and influences the audience to adopt the family morals and principles of the Cratchit family. Additionally, the symbol of fire established by Lexis like blazing and ignited links the family to warmth, hope, vision and love, and which contrasts the freezing temperatures associated with Scrooge through Dickens's use of pathetic fallacy. Dickens uses a colon to stress the importance of the presence of the luxury Christmas pudding, and the comma creates a sense of breathlessness to reflect all of the family as well as the reader taking a moment to marvel the pudding like a speckled cannonball. Dickens's use of simile is associated with war to contrast the theme of love and family at Christmas time. It could be argued that Dickens was a feminist because he presents Mrs Cratchit as a strong, willful, proud and successful housewife. Okay, I've briefly touched upon the idea of old John Mrs Dilber at the pawnbroker's shop. And again, this is very much to show corruption, the darker parts of the city, desperation, crime, poverty. Um, and this was probably to appall the upper classes, but also to provide education of what life was really like. Um, looking at Little Fan in a little bit more detail then, um, she represents loss and grief and risks at the time. You know, people could die in childbirth, uh, right through to the dirty water, which had referenced the cholera there. Um, she is partly um, accounts for Scrooge's bitterness and misery and alienation because he's perhaps grieving her. Uh, she's portrayed as a positive warm and close character to Scrooge in his childhood. We see the memory of when she visits him at school. We learn about the home life and relationship with parents through her dialogue and through her speech. It's really important that they have that conversation, that past memories revisited. And she makes us consider how fragile life is, like we do with Tiny Tim, and to live in the present and be mindful of our actions and beliefs, which Scrooge arguably doesn't do. He just goes through day-to-day -day counting his money. We could argue through this character, then, that Dickens is um, displaying his feminist viewpoints because she's a strong role model female character for this period in history. If you get a character question, I want you to think about what is the purpose of the character? What do they bring to the story? Why has Dickens made this character up and involved them within the story? If they appear more than once, because quite often the characters we see in stave one reappear in stave five, why? What's Why is that kind of circular structure being used? Um, think about what they say as well as what's said about them and where you're positioned to them. Are you close to them or, or repelled from them? And the same with the other characters. Um can you summarise how you feel about that character and try to provide a more layered, deep and analytical response as well to get you those higher marks? And then be thinking about what language Dickens has used, where he structured them in the novel, but also um, what they show about this period in history um, to put them into context. And you could also link them with how typical they are for the Gothic genre, what tone maybe they create through their language or their descriptions about them. Now, if you get a thematic question again be thinking how does the theme help to establish genre what's the writer's message how does it make the reader feel what's the tone of the piece of writing um which language and structural features show that are there any sub themes explored 
So it doesn't have to just be about one set theme. Which characters show this theme or do you link, which characters do you link mostly with this theme? And again, what was the writer hoping to achieve or change or highlight? So within this answer, try and write about five different, about four or five different ideas, about five P paragraphs, maybe about two sides of sort of average sized handwriting. Um, but it, it really is quality over quantity. But you've, you've got to have a range of, of ideas there. You need layered language analysis and alternative meanings if possible. If you're struggling to identify language techniques after heavily quoting from your extract, explore denotation, connotation, interesting words, metaphorical interpretations. Um, talk about anything from pace to uh, developing a reader's response. Quote heavily from the extract. Don't get hung up on having to remember quotations, okay? Avoid using phrases like later on when you can say in stave one, in stave two, okay? Because it's much better that way as a textual reference. And like I've said before, think slacked in your answer. Structure, language, audience, context, themes. So how is the text structured to interest you as a reader? Narrative structure, what type of narrator, what techniques are used in terms of the punctuation, sentence types, paragraph lengths. Language. What words do you focus on? What, are they, what words are used for impact? Why are they interesting? Denotation, connotation, devices, effects, semantic fields, dialogue, um, language that's relevant for the period and how does it establish genre and tone? Audience response. How do you respond as a modern day audience and what relationships do you create with the characters and how would an audience at this period in history react? And you can think, feel or have a physical response to that. How might this have evolved over time? Maybe you could put in some lit theories or audience theories there to give a deeper response. Context. Embed historical information. Explore genre. Um, think about the writer's influences and experiences. Why is it relevant today? What are the religious messages? And themes. Can you find any reoccurring themes or symbols? And in particular, do these link to key messages or morals? And again, what was the writer's aim? So think Slack, structure, language, audience, context and themes. So in terms of how to revise for this exam, you could choose to reread the text. Obviously, there are several versions of the DVD which you could look at. Perhaps create some mind map plans of potential exam questions that could come up. Um, you could, as usual, look at some sort of Mr. Bruff clips Go back to your study guides, create flashcards, look at the knowledge organisers. Um, make sure that you're tuning into as many virtual um, intervention sessions as possible or the intervention sessions taking place in school. Um, you could try and um, do a little bit more research on context if it's, if it's something that you're struggling with. So do a little bit of a Google search. Use Sparknotes and um, things like lit charts. GCSE pod, bite size, there'll be stacks of information on there too, okay? Um, perhaps you could um, try to produce some full answers and then mark your own work using a mark scheme or email your electronic work to a teacher or to a peer to do some peer marking via email. Um, just remember that you do lots of language analysis, weave your context in, have a range of points and it's really important that you do a plan before starting your answer. So very best of luck with that and I will aim to do another podcast very soon on English language paper one.